The Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. I'm Kate Setter. I'm your host for today. We are working on episode 22 of the podcast today, and we're going to be talking about how parents can help their kids when they see people in the community or in their school who look or behave differently than they do, and how we can help them learn about and be kind to others. So this is going to be a great conversation today. I'm joined in the studio by Drs. Kara Ayers and Susan Wiley, who are both faculty members in our Division of Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for for having us, yeah. So before we dig right into this conversation, wanted to give you both, um, you know, or ask you both actually to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do here and why you so kindly joined us for this conversation. Dr. Ayers, can I start with you? Sure. Um, So I am trained as a psychologist, and this topic really interests me professionally and personally. I love to think about the way kids learn about our world. And um, I'm also a person with a disability myself. I use a wheelchair for mobility, and um, I'm the mom to three kids who have learned about this, who are learning about this topic, um, including one of my kids has a disability as well. So um, exploring this topic through his eyes has been exciting. And um, I have a chance to do that as well through our University of Cincinnati Center for Excellence and Developmental Disabilities. Um, And we, you know, review books at times, we offer trainings on this topic. So this is something near and dear to my heart. Thank you for joining Mm -hmm. us to talk about it and help other families. Dr. Wiley. Yeah, thanks for for having us. Um, I think I actually go back a little ways to my college time where I worked in a camp for adults with disabilities, and it was a totally recreational setting. And in that uh, era of my life, I got so much out of that fun summer, those fun summers. And then uh, now, as a developmental pediatrician, get to do more medical and developmental care for children with disabilities through the Division of Developmental Pediatrics clinically. Fantastic. Thank you both for those introductions. So to start our conversation, um, I'd actually like to start with just some conversation about the term disabilities. I know in certain instances we use differences, but talk to us a bit about the word disabilities and what does it mean and how should we be thinking about using it and teaching children about what disabilities are? Okay. Um, I think sometimes we can be uncertain about the word disability. We're not sure if it's okay to say it. And I would really encourage people to um, work on getting comfortable with the word disability. There's actually a really interesting campaign called Hashtag Say the Word that encourages people to use the word disability for some specific reasons. So disability, um, unlike some of the other terms that we might use, um, maybe if we're coming to terms with a diagnosis or something, um, there aren't any laws that protect people with using any of the other words like special needs or different abilities, but there are laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, And there's also a rich history of people with disabilities from around the world. So I think that it's, it's not uncommon that people aren't sure if that's okay to say, but 
I would really encourage parents to use that word, to model it, um, and to get comfortable with it. And it, it may help to really read some of the perspectives of advocates with disabilities that you can find through that hashtag that explain how that word is really a, has become an important part of their identity. I think when I see children uh, who I'm diagnosing with disabilities, I'll often talk to them about how everyone has things they're good at and things that are hard for them. And we all have that. So we're gonna try to figure out what your strengths are as well as what your needs are and, and be able to kind of move forward with the things you want to accomplish. And so sometimes parents do struggle with labels or you know, disabilities. And I, I did have one family say, I didn't see it as a label as much as a handle that opened other doors. Mm -hmm. And sometimes th that pathway for families is, it's really hard, but it hopefully gets us through to the other side of hope and helping children be who the best they can be. And so when we're talking about children who are typically developing or typically abled and helping them learn about disabilities and differences in all sorts of people, how should parents approach that and when should they start kind of that conversation and helping kids understand that part of the world around them? I think it's never too early. Um, one of the things that I've started um, with when my kids were little was kind of narrating their world or narrating our play. And so making sure that we have um, representation of disability in our books and toys and narrating that, oh, you know, um, you know, Jenny has a wheelchair. Let's see if we can get this block and put it up to her house so she can use the ramp to get into her house. So, and narrating different types of disabilities because we know some are visible and some are invisible. But I really don't think that there's ever too early of a time for that because m most of us, you know, statistics say have um, family members that have disabilities. And so we can talk about that as well. We can talk about grandparents who may use hearing aids to be able to hear us better um, or all the different kind of supports that we have in our worlds to help kids really normalize that and realize that it's not scary. It's just part of nature. Um, I really like some of the work around emphasizing that disability is natural and that we see it in all parts of our world. And so we, we don't have to worry about starting that conversation too early. And then our kids typically kind of, um, as they do so well, if we follow their lead, they let us know when they're ready to think about things like, you know, the importance of inclusion and having kids that may be different from you, but so that we all learn together because we're going to work in this world together. So I, I see it as, you know, definitely a progression of learning about different aspects of disability, but never too early to introduce it. And I think you really think about the age of the child because sometimes just a little bit of information is sufficient mm -hmm. and you can move on and then they may cycle back around with you and ask more questions or more in-depth questions. And especially as kids get older, have that more abstract reasoning or see they're starting to recognize their own sense of justice in the world or things that might happen on the playground. Um, that's another great time to have those conversations coming home from school or at nighttime when, you know, yeah. when those kind of deeper thoughts uh, come about. That's a great point. And speaking of the playground, I, having an elementary school age child myself, the playground is often where kids kind of experiment with words and kind of the reactions that they get. And I'm curious what words or common terms kind of in this world of disabilities and just kind of 
being good people in general, can we talk a bit about words that can be hurtful or can be misunderstood and are hurtful but may not realize they are? Um, there's one that is particularly important that I, I, I think that we wanted to, to talk through. Would you just kind of help us understand that words matter, right? Yeah, and absolutely. And I mean, there's a lot. The R word is just not okay. It, and that's a full sentence and a full concept. Um, but <laughs> Period, is, end of story, right, not okay. Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, but it's used so pervasively. It's used in the media. It's used in homes. It's used on the playground all the time. And what's it, what we really also need are kids to be upstanders, to really stand up and say, that's not an okay word, and this is why. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and, and then really see those kids start to change their verbiage. It's not ever appropriate. I would agree, and I think as kids get older, um, you can also talk about why it's not appropriate. And so one of the pushback I've heard from kind of high school age kids is, oh, well, we weren't talking about like an actual person with a disability. And I say, but what were you talking about? You were talking about that that was not good or broken or that that was pointless, you know? And so they start to see that the synonyms that we're using that word for as slang in our society are really hurtful when, if that word has been connected to you as part of your diagnosis. I think a lot of words aren't as black and white as the R word, but it can be the way that we say them. Um, You know, tone matters, words definitely matter. Another one that is sometimes thrown around with hype, um, so my child is a person with dwarfism, a little person, and so in our, in our home, the M word or midget is really hurtful. We've had, unfortunately, you know, people have even driven by our house when he's been playing out front and yelled that out the window um, because our world sees that particular disability and, you know, we could talk about how it's, why it's portrayed in the media or other reasons, but they see it as funny in some ways that most of society knows that it would be really socially inappropriate to like point and laugh at me in a wheelchair but with my son as a little person we've had grown adults do that so that word is definitely also with the r word in in the never category (laughs) but i think that there are a lot of words that i mean unfortunately one of the conversations we've had at our dinner table is the word special needs in itself or the words are not problematic but when we use that as like a large labeling of kids. We've talked about how my kids have observed sometimes that school administrators will say, oh, it's the, that's the special needs kids lunch table. And so it's really this massive labeling where we miss out on how awesome kids are uniquely, you know. So language, you know, it gets complicated and it changes over time. Um, and that's okay too. We're a huge, you know, people with disabilities are the largest minority in the world. So it's okay that we have different thoughts and opinions about words and they change over time and that's that's just part of um, evolving I think as a society. So I'd like to expand a little bit on that conversation about special needs because that is a term that is so broadly used for so many things. How is it? What is the appropriate way? Is it to say a child has special needs, not that we're labeling the person as a special needs person. Like, how can we, or should we just try not to use it at all because things have changed and evolved and there's better way to describe the same thing? Yeah. 
I think in general between those two choices, you know, a uh, person first is a good, so saying a person with special needs, if that's the way that, um, you know, I, I think it's difficult because sometimes when parents get a diagnosis, um, they may feel more comfortable saying special needs. And we definitely hear that reiterated in our education system. And that's how it's written in many of the policies around special education. Um, but many children that have special needs also have disabilities and or actually have disabilities. And so as they become an adult, the laws that protect them will be based on their status as a person with a disability and also the culture that they're a part of, the community that I hope that they will feel a part of and get support from will be of people with disabilities. So um, I think person first is a, is a good way to go. Um, and then just, you know, recognizing individual differences and comfort levels with um, whether somebody feels like disability aligns with um, their identity at that point. Yeah, I think it's important to respect an individual's choice and in how they yeah. self-disclose. I also, though, really, I feel like we're talking a lot about differences and not enough about similarities. And that I think that's the other really big key is inside, kids all have very similar desires and wants. And um, so I think the other way to approach it with kids is also to think about, well, what are the things they like to do just like you like to do? And maybe they do it differently, but there's, there's some commonality there as well. And I love that as kind of where we go next because one of the things we really wanted to talk about is how do we help kids as parents um, learn to respectfully learn about kids in their community um, that may not be um, able to do all of the things that they can do. So I know kids are super curious and can we just talk a little bit about those first interactions, how parents can help kids do, um, take the next step to learn about a child so that they can find those similarities? Yeah. You know, I think some of it as adults, um, anytime we're hoping to widen our kids' view of the world different than our own family is um, building up our own tolerance to discomfort and awkwardness. <laughs> And kids are really good at throwing us in the deep end of that <laughs> in terms of, you know, asking that question loudly so the person can hear it. And what do you do in that moment? And so I think first is checking with yourself as an adult in terms of, gosh, this is making me really uncomfortable because maybe you're thinking about what the other person is thinking and you don't want to make that person feel badly. Um, so I think checking with yourself is important and then recognizing that um, your child has curiosities, just as hopefully they have about lots of parts of the world. And so addressing those, um, just as Susan said, can it sometimes less is more. Sometimes they don't need, they don't want the whole, you know, um, extensive list of <laughs> what you're about to educate them. Um, sometimes they just want to know that that person uses a wheelchair to get around like you to play on this playground, or um, they're having a really hard time right now, you know, feeling okay, it's loud in here and it's bright, and I think they might be upset about that. Um, I think that there are lots of opportunities, thankfully, to learn about disability, so I would encourage families to really seek those out. Um, sometimes, you know, uh, you'll have the opportunity where somebody will want to engage with you about their own disability, but I also really think it's the responsibility of families, like so many other aspects of diversity in our world, to also learn about that on their own as a family, too, and not only look to each individual they encounter as their kind of sole source of education on that topic. 
And I think probably, you know, as somebody who works in this field, I actually was probably a little more intentional than maybe other families about having books that do have kids with differences in them or talking that through at a pretty early age. And, you know, I'm going to events that my daughter was going to, too. And so I'd kind of prep her, hey, you know, this is one of our work events and there might be kids who uh, talk differently or might be impulsive or, you know, you know, and, and just check with me if you're needing some help navigating that. But again, that to some degree, that exposure really normalized. Um, and, and those questions were not, aren't necessarily then quite so abrupt yeah. or they're at least, you know, she's play, she's prepared and, and able to kind of know she can ask those questions and we can talk through strategies. Totally, yeah, I think you just don't wanna accidentally send a message that it's taboo or to be avoided or oh, we don't talk about that. Um, I think sometimes we can accidentally send that message if we, um, you know, I think people are well-intentioned and that they don't want to make me as a person in a wheelchair feel uncomfortable. So they're kind of jerk their kid away, you know, and shush them. And I hope that, you know, on the way home or something, they're having a conversation about that because I don't want the child to get the message that, you know, don't ever speak about that or don't, you know, look at that person. So it's, it's a fine line between staring and acknowledging that somebody is a person and they're in your space. And um, I think kids with disabilities really reflect on that in an interesting way about how no, they don't like to be stared at, but they also don't like it when they're kind of looked over as if they're invisible. And sometimes adults do that because they are uncomfortable. They know not to stare, but they don't know where that in-between is of just kind of looking at another human and saying, hey, I see you there. And I think that there are some people who have said, well, just ask. Yeah. And. I'd love your thoughts on how appropriate that is. I think it, it depends on the situation in so many ways. There's a really beautiful book called Just Ask by Justice Sotomayor, which we have in our home. It has some excellent educational pieces about diabetes and other disabilities. I love the way it gives the spectrum of disability. Um, but we also in our home talk about how, you know, how do we feel? We, we actually have the personal experience of being just asked a lot. Um, and we talk about how sometimes it's okay, sometimes it's fun, we've met some really nice people, but sometimes we just wanna be at the grocery or, you know, um, my daughter, when I would pick her up from daycare, she would have, she would get pretty frustrated around the age of three or four because our hellos and goodbyes were really interrupted by tons of questions and questions. And so I asked her um, daycare provider, if could I get all the kids together and kind of do an assembly type I chatted with the kids, we read a book, I answered all the questions they had that day. And of course, you know, they have others that pop up here and there, but it really helped to alleviate because one of the things I went over is that, you know, when your friend Hannah sees me after her day, she wants to tell me about what she painted and what are we gonna eat for dinner and all of that. And so I really tried to normalize my daughter as one of their peers, as well as like our family. Um, and I think maybe that's what we don't sometimes think about if you haven't had that experience of being the one who's asked a lot is that um, many of us very much want to help you with the education, but it happens a lot. And so sometimes we just want to go about our day-to-day our -day lives too. And how should families think if there's a family who's really just trying to get through the grocery store and a kiddo has a question um, and they just say, I. Thank you for your interest, but you know, I'm just trying to get out of here. We need to respect that, that there are people who are trying to get home to make dinner and <laughs> yeah. not take it as a reason not to 
to be curious or try to meet somebody new next time, right? right? Right, yeah, and I think, you know, how you ask is really important. I mean, I think respectful questions might help smooth things over when we are asking folks about their child or themselves. Uh, and then being graceful about a no. It's not always our business or ours to know. And again, I think learning, rec taking that, if, if I had asked somebody and they said, I, I'm you know, trying to get home, sorry, I don't have the time to educate you, whether they were kind about it or not kind about it, I can still query on my own and maybe think about other resources to understand the things that I was curious about or my child was curious about. I'm always interested, too, in how kids answer these questions when they're asked. I mean, mm -hmm. I very much remember I grew up in Kentucky and remember a lot of kids coming up to me and saying, what's wrong with you? And <laughs> my mom empowering me, empowering me from a pretty young age that depending on my answer, sometimes I would give them a spiel about, you know, I have osteogenesis imperfecta, but sometimes I would look at them and say nothing and move on. And my mom very much empowered me that both were okay and I think that's important too, if your child is on the end of receiving those questions, how you ask matters, mm -hmm. you know, what's wrong with you is almost never appropriate. <laughs> um, also, you know, I encourage kids too, to think about um, th that in general, we don't ask people about why their bodies look different, whether it be weight or, you know, because there's lots of ways to talk about those differences and understand them without asking people to kind of explain their body. And um, so I've talked about that with kids on both ends, kids that are frustrated that they feel like they're having to explain their bodies, but also kids that have genuine curiosities and it would be helpful for them to know. And so let's figure that out without them having to get that information from other kids who may be in different phases of their development. You know, I, sometimes younger kids are more comfortable with that than they are when they hit, you know, teenage years and then they're not as comfortable and that's, that's okay too. That's a great point because I think, you know, little kids are kind of honest and abrupt mm -hmm. and then they move on and that's not a big deal. But as yeah. you get hit those preteen, teen years and just the things that kids are learning at that time about socialization and fitting in and, it, you know, there's a lot of desire for privacy on a lot of yeah. things. So mm -hmm. that's a really good point. So when the kids ask those very abrupt questions, <laughs> do you have any advice for parents on how to address that gracefully? Yeah, I think reflecting back um, what usually when I hear these or my own child ask these, I reflect back about, wow, you're curious about, um, you know, why she's, why she's upset, you know, or why um, if it seems to be a child who's maybe having trouble, you know, regulating in a certain environment, because it's not always, you know, wheelchairs or walkers or really clear like examples as parents that we can um, hone in on. And so after kind of reflecting back about that curiosity, I think parents can attempt to give a simple basic explanation with what they know. And that may is, is often, you know, enough for the moment. And then taking that opportunity too to kind of take note to look for opportunities to educate further as a family together. As adults, we we still can do this too. You know, we don't have the opportunity to learn about disability history usually in our typical education program. So we might not know about the really cool, you know, journey towards civil rights that people like Judy Human and Ed Roberts and there's some really awesome stories that as a family you could learn about together and kind of start seeing disability not as this, um, you know, this 
negative difference that stands out, but just part of our diversity of our world. Um, and so I think dealing with it in the moment is really important, though, and that can happen different ways. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, I think you hit it pretty nicely. I think I'm usually just, you know, sometimes kids are having a hard time and they might be good at some things and have a harder time at others, just like, you know, sometimes we're having our meltdowns. So it's just, you know, part of the part of how people are and and let's give them some space. You know, I think that's maybe sometimes another thing is, you know, it looks like they do, do you need a hand? I mean, that's another way to think about it with a parent is, can I help? Not thinking you can, yeah. but asking, you know, if you can help. And if not, step back and, and don't be part of the looky-loos and the crowd that is, is you know, if it's around yeah. a child with a behavior problem. That's a great problem. point, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, those middle-of-the-store meltdowns, those happen. <laughs> <They> do. <laughs> to everyone, right? To everyone. Right. But it's a lot different if it's a 15-year-old. And mm-hmm. I think that's where, you know, yeah. those sorts of things are a lot more evident um, mm-hmm. and when you're little it's everybody's experienced it so I think if we can think about that as our own parental put ourselves in somebody else's shoes how would I want you know others to to respond in this moment and what kind of kindness and grace should we be giving folks mm-hmm. and I think in, in times of kind of not distress too I think of you know little kid birthday parties if you're inviting the whole class truly invite the whole class and mm-hmm. um, I think we often don't know what it will mean to families of kids who are um, not invited, even though the whole class is invited. And so you may have to ask some questions that you may feel a little awkward about. You know, we really want, um, you know, your child to come. Would, you know, does this venue work for them? Could they come for a little bit if you think they'd be overwhelmed? But those, especially those early inclusion opportunities where as families, we often try to be inclusive of a whole group. Mm-hmm. I think we don't realize sometimes that um, kids with disabilities may be left out really early on in those processes. But with some questions and, again, kind of getting over maybe our own nervousness about saying the wrong thing, we can make such a positive impact. Even if you do say the wrong thing, you know, the, the impact you make will be so much more powerful than that. I think another piece of that is don't assume somebody needs your help. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, people want to do what they can do. And so I think a lot of times we're thinking we're being kind and can I get the door for you or just getting mm-hmm. the door for someone or, uh, you know, whatever it is that we're, we're thinking we're helping with. But um, to some, that's a really an ableism. It's, it's thinking that this person needs our help. In fact, they may be quite capable and likely mm-hmm. are. So what do you do if you do say just the wrong thing? <laughs> Like, <laughs> apologize, <laughs> just apologize and, yeah. and move on because totally. I feel like yeah. there's just, it, I think that people so want to do the right thing and meet more people and sometimes it just comes out entirely incorrectly, not the way you intended it to. Yeah. I mean, I would go home and reflect on that. I mean, usually I think in the moment, I'm like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt your day. And then I'd probably go home and, you know, berate myself over and over until I figure out what I need to say next time. And not really. I don't know that I berate myself hugely, but I would. You know, we all feel that kind of shame, really, about your guilt about, you know, we didn't didn't do it. We didn't present the way we hoped. And so or that didn't have the outcome we had intended. Um, And I think if your intentions are really you know, good, you, you will start some of that self, self-education yeah. pathway as well. And, you know, there might be resources that if you don't feel like you have a lot of exposure to individuals with disabilities, 
you know, we can share some resources around how to gain more information about, you know, respectful uh, inclusion, respectful conversations. Again, you yeah, know, totally. if I were meeting anybody for the first time, it's it's probably who I am that I want you to know, not what I have, right, <laughs> I mean, exactly. so to speak. Yeah, totally. There's some, I love this campaign, um, actually, that the, the UK, United Kingdom government put forth to promote employment of people with disabilities because they recognize that that awkwardness and fear of saying the wrong thing actually contributes to lower employment rates of people with disabilities because, you know, it plays out in the interview cycle, it plays out, and people avoid, you know, employment of persons, really, because they, they worry about what will that look like on a day-to-day -day basis, and they may not do it intentionally or consciously, but um, it's a really funny series of short videos that play up kind of these awkward interactions and really just point out that, look, like, we're all awkward sometimes, and if we can just laugh a little bit and move on, <laughs> then it'll be a better outcome for everybody. We might try to find those videos. Yeah. Well, they're they're really funny. Them. I mean, yeah. the Brits kind of have that unique sense of humor, yeah. right? But they're really, they, but they're also yeah. they're funny, but they're they're informative exactly, in, in really yeah. helpful ways. Mm -hmm. I think finding that intersection of funny and informative can help yeah. break down so many communication barriers. Totally, so yeah. we will absolutely try to dig those out and mm -hmm. see if we can see if we can include them with resources. Yeah. Um, and I do want to talk to you about a few of those, but before we get there. Um, Talk to me a little bit about stereotypes and the role that that stereotypes can play in um, the exclusion or inclusion of of children, and yeah. how we can help kids kind of think differently. Totally, yeah. I think um, I give a lecture actually to college students about myth busting around disabilities, and some of the myths that we talk about are that all people with disabilities are angelic and always nice and so friendly <laughs> and so we talk about that no people with disabilities are as different as non-disabled people and you know all kinds of personalities and differences and um in who people are which is what we're really talking about here and sometimes that can matter because we talk about kind of thinking about people with disabilities as always childlike and not ever growing up and being interested in things that adults are like you know, where will they work and will they get married and do they want to have kids? And um, so a lot of stereotypes put people with disabilities in boxes that don't include those types of roles as they grow up. Um, and then the other one that I think we don't intend any harm with, but really based on what Susan was saying about that helpfulness, we are often taught that we should, we, you know, we want to be kind to people with disabilities, so we're taught to help them. And a lot of kids' books inadvertently reinforce this where um, can't tell you how many that I've seen where, you know, this new student, new rabbit student or something comes to the classroom in the wheelchair and the rest of the book is about the way the other animal students help the person. And that's really the entire depth of the character is that this is somebody we want to be nice to, which is good, but how we be nice to them is we help them. We push them. We get their books. We, you know, and so instead of seeing this person as a dynamic friend, um, and kind of equal typical peer that may do things differently, but that wants to be a part of the group, not really an, you know, a, a person that you just help constantly. And so I think stereotypes can play out differently. Their intentions aren't always negative, but their impact can be for people with disabilities. Well, I think that's really a, a great story because I also recognize that sometimes parents of children with disabilities aren't quite sure how to empower them in ways to be a self-advocate or... Um, you know, they, 
it's you want to protect your child from the ways of the world. Uh, but what I really see most, you know, most effective is really, hey, you're part of our family. You're going to help with the chores too. There's, there's skills that they build within their capability and their capabilities, but they really are empowered to be a contributing member of the family and their school community and beyond. Yeah, I love that idea. It goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were you had before we started. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you were talking about a story that your children read, and I thought it was a great example of this exact stereotype and how yeah. how pervasive it is in media and books and so forth. Yeah, I think sometimes we don't realize the way that um, media has kind of shortcutted building some characters and using disability. So my daughter, my four-year-old, is really into My Little Ponies right now, and <laughs> one of the books, um, one of her favorites right now is about um, these pirate uh, characters and the way that they portrayed the pirates to be kind of evil and villainous very quickly um, is that each of the pirates has a prosthetic. So one has a fake leg, one has a fake beak, and one has an eye patch with a fake eye. And so immediately, you know, the authors kind of didn't have to convince kids that these pirates were scary or evil because they pointed out really quickly that they were different in this visible way. And so in our house, we actually read that book um, an obnoxiously number of times, actually, because she loves it. Because <laughs> she's but, four. Yeah, she's four. <laughs> over and but, over. Yeah, but we also talk about, like, weird, you know, that um, are we supposed to think these these pirates are scary only because of this? And we talk about, you know, we happen to be fortunate to have friends with different uh, disabilities, including amputations. And we talk about, you know, our friend Jake, and he's not scary. And, you know, of course, my four-year-old is like, yeah, yeah, I like, get on with the My Little Pony story. But my 11-year-old, who, you know, I've been talking about this with years with her, recognizes that, like, I think the comment she made is, like, it's kind of just lazy of the authors. They could have told us that the pirates were scary in different ways, but instead they just use the fact that we think that, you know, um, certain disabilities are portrayed. And they have been. You know, if you think back to so many examples in the media, comic books, and Mm -hmm. this is like a shortcut that we've taken and we make people different from people and we think that alone will convince people they're scary and so pushing back on that narrative I think is really important and at least in my house we don't necessarily censor it but we talk about it because I know that they'll be exposed to these messages you know I really think of ableism as a smog that's in the air um, with messages that tell us that disability isn't good or isn't as good as without disability and so we all breathe it. And so I don't necessarily like welcome it into my house, but when we encounter it, which we do often, we point it out and we talk about it and we talk about, you know, what to do about it. And we all have different opinions. You know, my four-year-old is like, eh, read the book again for now. <laughs> and mm-hmm. My 11-year-old, you know, wants to start a protest of My Little Pony. <laughs> so it just, it varies. And I definitely try to follow my kids' leads because they, you know, they're, all kids are incredible teachers. If we really look to them, they'll show us a lot more than we expect to. That's incredibly insightful of your 11-year-old to point <laughs> out it's yeah. it's a lazy shortcut yeah. in storytelling. Mm-hmm. It is. So the resources, I, I hope that through this conversation we have, or we will, um, when it's published, help some people say, yes, I want to learn more. I I don't know enough about disabilities and I'd like to do some of this research. Where can we point them? How can we help them get started with, um, or not get started, hopefully continue Mm -hmm. their journey? Um, Which ones do you trust the most? 
Totally. Um, one that I love and was just released this year for adults, but really you could read this alongside kids and talk about it with them, is called Demystifying Disability. It's by Emily Ladau. She's a blogger if you want to kind of get a preview of it. Um, her blog is Words to Wheel By, I believe, or Words I Wheel By. And it just lays out these beautiful scenarios, really an easy read, talks about, you know, she's at a coffee shop and somebody approaches her. Some of what we've talked about today, like what what is the person on the receiving end of the questions experiencing? What's the person who wants and needs to be educated experiencing? But she really walks us through all kinds of aspects of um, that myth busting that we talked about. So that would be a great place for adults to start or continue their learning journey. And some of my favorite recent releases of kids' books, um, and there are some you know long-established ones too, but these stand out to me in the last year or so. One is called What Happened to You? Um, and it is centered, the interesting part about this book is it's centered told from the perspective of the kid with a disability, which we actually don't see as much in kids' literature. We more see it told about them. Um, instead, this is told, it takes place in a playground where kids are approaching this kid and saying, what happened to you? He has a leg amputation. He has a prosthetic leg. And he, he tells them all these like really, um, you know, hard to believe tales about what happened to him. But at the, in the end, spoiler alert, one of the kids realizes that he just wants to play with them and he doesn't want to be interrogated about this. And so they end up, you know, having this really fun time playing together in this fantasy of that they're building together. And then the other one that I love that's a recent release as well is called We Move Together. And the illustrations are beautiful. It has a wide range of disabilities pictured, including, you know, augmentative communication devices and different, um, different ways of moving. But the main idea is that we're all moving through the world together. No matter how we get there, it might look different, but it's kind of this celebration of differences. And it has deeper messages, but also I like it because you can read it and not feel like you're, you know, preachy or you're, you know, not... Not, not too often at bedtime am I ready for like a didactic, you know, learning <laughs> session. It, it's both of those are truly like fun reads too, which I think is important. Um, and we don't often hear that, that disability can be fun to learn about. And I hope that families take that as a challenge and, and make that happen in their homes. And we're going to make mistakes sometimes. We all do. And then we just have to pick ourselves back up and, and try again. Um, yeah. Totally. <laughs> Yep, if you're not, I don't think you're doing it enough or doing it right if you're not making mistakes sometimes. <laughs> We've got to push ourselves to get out of that comfort zone. I feel like that's a lot with life in general. Yes, it is. Is mm -hmm. that if we push ourselves and, you know, make the connection to people, sometimes we make mistakes along the way, but it's it's worth it. Totally, yeah. I like the Brene Brown. I'm here to get it right, not be right. Mm -hmm. I like that too. Any final thoughts from either of you? Anything that you've thought of as we've been talking that we didn't have on our original plan that you'd like to make sure we share with families before we finish? I mean, I th the only thing I would say is I go back to my origins of why I do this work. I have received so much more uh, by working in this field and expanding who I am as a person, how I parent, um, how I show up. And so if that's if that helps people ready to dive in a little more, go for it. It will be well worth the learning and experiences. Thank you for that, Dr. Wiley. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. Um, I think that even people that are 
have gotten this far with us today, you know, listening in and wanting to learn about this are already further in their journey than they probably realize. And, you know, I'm definitely appreciative of that, both both as a professional, because I know that's what it's going to take to have a more inclusive world, is more people wanting that and plugging in. And also very much so just as an individual and a mom, I'm excited to know that our community is filled with people that want to talk about this topic with us. So. Well, thank you both for joining us today to talk about this topic and get this conversation started and hope to have you back at some point and maybe we can continue the conversation um, for today. You've been listening to the Young and Healthy podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you both for being here. We appreciate it. Thanks thank for you. having us. Yeah. This episode was recorded on November 8th, 2021. The content of the Young and Healthy podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Our theme music was created by Stephen Greco, and this episode was produced by Symphony Pitts. Thanks for listening. Join us next week. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.